are continuing our series. It's essentially on discipleship, how to follow Jesus in a world of fictions, and how do we not lose the plot? How do we not lose sight of the true story that our lives are a subplot in? This week, we are going to be discussing how we as a church, essentially what role do Sunday mornings play our discipleship? Another way to put the question is, why do we go to church? You might be thinking to yourself, I've never heard a sermon on actually why we go to church. I just know from the time I was five, my mom would say, let's go to church. And I'd say, why are we going to church? She'd, because we go to church, right? Why do we go to church? What's happening? What, what role does church, Sunday mornings, what role do they play, does it play in our discipleship, our ability to follow Jesus? What we're going to look at is that this Sunday morning, this what we call the gathering, is, is vital for helping us remember the story that we're in. What we do on Sunday mornings is we retell the story. I'm going to break that down, what it looks like, so that we would remember the story, that we would then be realigned to that true story, not being tossed to and fro by all the fictions of this world. And then as we leave this place, that we would respond and live in light of that true story that we are in. Now, as I describe Sunday mornings, church, gathering, as something about how to retell the story, that might sound kind of strange to you. never thought of it that way. That's because while historically that's how the church thought about gathering together, we've largely, in the modern world, we've lost it. We've lost the ability to tell this story. And that has repercussions for how we engage and how we think about engaging on Sunday mornings. Let me parallel this to another, in, I guess you could say, industry where this happened. In the 1950s, America was in a, a, a stage of opulence. It's post-war. And during the 1940s, during the war years, the lean years, years of austerity, out of that austerity had, in the world of cinema, it had produced all kinds of forms of filmmaking, most famously film noir, uh, where they came up with all these ways of telling story in film, kind of a, a golden age. The opulence of the 1950s during that time, they had essentially forgotten how to tell the stories. In, instead, they made movies about all the other things, but forgot the main thing. See, movies became about all the beautiful persons. Uh, movies became uh, all about the big personalities. Movies became about the sweeping sound scores. Movies became about the dazzling stage production and soundstage. Now, what happened because of this was it actually began to change how Americans would go to movies. See, if you essentially in the late 50s, you've got just the same, you know, Marilyn Monroe and let's say Clark Gable or whoever else it might be. It was a movie star and it was just them with really no story behind what they were doing. But they're were, they were in some new beautiful outfits and it was the same kind of just like eh, warmed over, microwaved over love story, something like that. But really we're here to see the music. We're here to see the production. We're here to see the beautiful people. And there really was no story. What happened was in movie going in America, Americans stopped going to movies right on time. 
In fact, what Americans would do is they would show up a quarter of the way through the movie. They would show up halfway through the movie. Because if it's not really about telling a story, then it really doesn't matter when you go. Now, there was one man who this drove crazy. His name was Alfred Hitchcock, famous director. Hitchcock was trying to tell story, things that matter. And Hitchcock was driven nuts by this reality, and he said it's two things. One, we need to learn how to retell story, or tell story again. And secondly, then we need to help everyone learn how to engage when an actual story is being told. So Hitchcock did, some, did something that changed movie cinema forever. It's the movie Psycho. Famous movie. You probably have heard of it. Hitchcock had, in this movie, I think it was, what, 1960, he hired Janet Leigh. Janet Leigh was the beautiful, beautiful woman or actress of the day. Paid her all this money. She becomes the starlet on all of the movie posters. And so what happens, though, is in the movie, he does something interesting. The, the camera pans in first in an apartment building, and it follows Janet Leigh around. The first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, I should have watched this so I could time it, but it's following her around. There's even this point when she's going driving, and there's just the camera staring into her eyes through a windshield that's being rained on in a storm, and she's just driving for about a minute straight. You're watching it. I go, why am I watching this, right? And, and it's anchored in her, and then she goes to this creepy off-the-highway hotel in the middle of nowhere called the Bates Hotel. And, and she gets out, and she meets this creepy innkeeper, right, Norman Bates. It all makes you feel a little weird about the whole thing. And then she goes in, and she's taking a shower, and there's the famous scene where she's attacked in the shower, and she's, she's killed. After she dies, this is only about 15 minutes into the movie, mind you. The camera, she's essentially, it starts by right in her eye, and it zooms out, and as it goes out, the camera begins doing this, and it just aimlessly floats all over the bathroom. You're unanchored from the one person whose perspective you'd had the entire movie. It's very disorienting. It makes your, you just feel almost confused and overwhelmed. How will I, where am I almost as somebody who's watching this story? And then what happens is you begin to hear Norman Bates, I can't remember her name, but he's yelling for her, hello, hello. And something in your stomach begins to feel almost nauseous and turning because this creepy guy who you need to anchor to someone, a perspective in the movie, yet this guy coming in, I don't want to anchor to that guy of all the guys, but yet he's the one here, so I really want to anchor in a character. And then you get anchored in him. It's actually a technique that's been used again and again. Whatever you think of horror genre, whatever, the worldview of Alfred Hitchcock, he did something. He recaptured how to tell story. Now, in order, though, to have that effect, Hitchcock had done something else. See, Hitchcock knew, and he designed the movie in this way specifically so he could do something, actually, to get American moviegoers to engage in a way they hadn't because they'd lost how to hear story. What Hitchcock did was outside of every single movie theater, he had made a contract with them. They could not allow anyone in if they, they were not allowed to show the movie unless every person who watched the movie was there from the very beginning. He put this placard outside of all the theaters, and he was pointing to a clock, and it would have the latest showtime. And if you weren't in there, if you were a minute late, you weren't allowed in. They'd lock the doors. Now, this is not going to be a sermon on being at church on time. <laughs> but it's not going to be less than that. See, what Hitchcock 
realized was that because they'd lost the ability to tell story, they also had lost any notion of what it meant to engage with story. Two things need to be addressed. Need to tell story, and we need to learn how to engage in story. I think that today we are in a similar place in the church in the West. See, for a while now, we've made church about the big personalities. We've made church about the beautiful people, perhaps. We've made church about the sweeping music and just the fleeting emotional experience, irregardless perhaps of the truth that's stated during that music. We've made church about the dazzling stage design, perhaps. In other words, it's, we've in many ways made church about all these things, but in the midst of it, we've actually forgotten the main reason that we gather on Sunday mornings, which is to remember the story, to remember what God has done. And as we remember that, to be captivated by it and have our hearts realigned to it so that then we would go out into the world and live not in the fictions all around us, but with our eyes open up and alive to the kingdom of God. So what do we need? We need an understanding of how we tell the story. What is it that we do every, mo every Sunday morning when you come to church? That How do we tell the story? And then secondly, what does it look like to engage in the story? Because many of us have never grown up in church where actually it mattered how we engaged. Where we're going over the next few weeks, because we're talking about how do we growing as a disciple, and essentially how do we as a church. And we're not saying this is the silver bullet. There are no silver bullets. The Holy Spirit and the work of Christ is the silver bullet in terms of our lives. However, and we're not saying it's the right way. However, we're saying this is our intentional way. Our desire is that you would grow deeper in your walk with Christ. You would know, love, and obey Him, and you would come to know God in deeper and profounder ways. And the question is, if you spend three years, four years, a decade, two decades here at Anthem, what kind of a disciple of Jesus will you become? There are primary ways in which context in which we do life together. One of them is the gathering. And at the gathering, the way that we don't get captivated by the fictions of the world, but we stay, we don't lose the plot, is it helps us every week retell the story. In the next weeks, we'll look at what groups, small groups in our life, our, kind of our tribe within the church, how that plays a role. And we'll look at the grind, and what I mean by that is just our habits and daily disciplines throughout the week. But today, the gathering. How do we retell? We're going to look at why we gather. We're going to look at how we gather. And then last, we're going to look at what could be, consider, what could be the next step of participation. Because one of the things during this series, here's a phrase, emancipation comes through participation. Emancipation from the fictions of the world comes through participating in the means that God has given us, which is the gathering, life with one another, being in his word, all the means of grace God has given us. So the more that we participate, the more of freedom and deliverance we'll find and life in him that we'll find. So again, why we gather, how we gather, and the next steps, how we can participate, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we, you don't just call us to go to church because it's just go to church. But there's a reason for it. And so, Lord, would you help us to just see this in a new way, to be amazed by the gift that the gathering of your people is every Sunday, and, Lord, to be renewed in our commitment. Spirit, would you apply this and wherever it needs to be applied in each of our lives? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do we gather? Why should we go to church on Sundays, right? That's how we usually say it. Why do we go to church? So starting in verse 19, again, this is uh, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers, since... Now, I want you to notice there are going to be two since phrases. 
And what's happened is he starts here, therefore, because the author of Hebrews in the first ten and a half chapters has laid out all these truths about Jesus. And then now he's saying, because of all these things that are true, therefore, now, because of them, do these. And what he does first is he rehashes everything he's just said. He kind of summarizes or recaps it. And it comes in the two senses that we get in verses 19 through 21. He says, therefore, brothers, since, since I've just been telling you, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, that Jesus has done something no one in human history could do. The Israelites were staring at a temple, God's in the holy of holies, like we want to be in the presence of God. Have you ever wondered, like you desire to be in the presence of God in this acute way because of pain or doubt or whatever it is in your life? And they were on the outside, and they wanted to go into that Holy of Holies where God was, but they couldn't be present with Him. And it says, Jesus, by His body being broken, He tore the veil. Jesus did something that gave us access to God. And then it says, since because, and and also since we have a great high priest over the God, not only did Jesus accomplish something, did He make a way, Jesus sustains that way. Since Jesus made a way to God's presence and also as the high priest, what he's saying there is now Jesus is risen. He's at the Father's right hand. He's also serving as a priest. His sacrifice is perfect and timeless. And so, therefore, he's actually keeping the way. He's sustaining the way so that now in 2023, that truth still holds up that we have access to God. So, he's saying because of that, you have access to God. And then it says because of that, there are two or three actions. So it says, since these things are true, then in 22 through 24, it gives us three, let us. Three, you have an invitation to respond in three ways. To draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Draw near with a true heart, not a hypocritical heart. Not a heart that's filled with doubt. Not a heart that wonders, like, would God really welcome me? He's saying, no, with a true heart where you can come in and say, yes, I have sin, I have shame, I have all the weaknesses and the dependencies and the frailties and the things. My week did not go how I think it should have gone. I'm a little embarrassed now coming into the presence of God, but he's saying you have access. Why? Because Jesus has also truly done something. And the Christ in you is bigger than the sin in you. So let us draw near. Let us then in 23 hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We don't have to wonder if it'll change. It's not dependent upon us. It's what Christ has done. And then 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And so therefore also when he says because of these things that Jesus has done, because he's given you access to God, because he's then given access to others, you also can encourage one another to that and mirror that to one another. This is true. This isn't made up. That this is our story that we're actually in. Now, then it culminates in verse 25 and he says, and what's the best way? to like capture this, to keep yourself in this mindset, to not lose the plot. 25, he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he says, draw near to one another. Come together in a gathering regularly to remember these truths. So what, what's being said here? Why we gather? So that's the flow, the logical flow of the text we're looking at. So why do we gather? It's to retell and capture that story. Since these things are true, let's live in this way and let's capture it. So first, why do we gather? Because of what Jesus has done. 
Why do we gather? Because of what Jesus said. We don't have to. Listen to this. We do not have to go to church on Sundays. We get to go to church on Sundays. That is not your pastor trying to play some judo mind trick on you, right? Like, oh, this is like a self-help seminar. Uh, no, what I'm saying is we get to. Can, the primary problem of humanity is that we're separated from our creator. <laughs> the next primary problem would be that if we went to our creator, we'd be consumed because we can't be with our creator. And so he must make a way. And God has made a way, and because of Jesus and what he's done, we can draw near to God, and what he's saying is in a very acute way every week, you can draw near to God, and, and when you pray by your bed, you can draw near to God to family dinner table. You can draw, God's omnipresent, God's everywhere, but we draw an acute way that God uses as a means of grace in our life, this palpable sense of his presence. And we gather together, and he says, you can do it because of what Jesus has done. You know, when I was thinking about this, it hit me in a fresh way where I was like, I, can you imagine an Old Testament Israelite who's been wondering, how could we be in the presence of God? How will God solve this? And then all of a sudden they hear, there is a way open, and once a week you can come to the presence of God with the people of God. And he's like, oh, or else I'm going to play some golf. Would never happen. We could spend an entire sermon series on these verses capturing what's being said here, the profound truth of God giving us access. But not only that, but then also we, because of what Jesus has done, then we can remember what Jesus has done. We can come together to hold fast, to remind one another of these truths. We don't do it alone. And then third, to make it explicit, to encourage one another in Christ as a body. Notice the logic of verse 25. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, okay, so not neglecting to go to church. Let's put it in modern language, okay, even though technically we'll come back to that, but it's helpful to say it that way. Not neglecting to go to church as is the habit of some. I could imagine like the guys were like as is the habit of some, like they're in the back of the crowd. It's like, you guys, I see you, right? Uh, as is the habit of some, no, they're not even here, right? No, but encouraging one another. So I expect it to read like this. You should go to church. Why? Because you should go to church. That's a lot of what we have always heard. I joked about it at the beginning. But a lot of us have heard, like, why do I go to church? I don't know. You just go to church. Well, what's he saying here? You meet together. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but be at church. No, what he says is, but in, be encouraging one another. Why do we go? Why are we here? What's the gift? What's the opportunity every Sunday morning when Jesus has come together with the church and gathered together? What he's saying is you have this opportunity to encourage one another. Just as much as the why we gather, the who we gather with matters. Because God is saying this isn't just some theoretical thing where we come in and we just get a bunch of nice thoughts and tips and tidbits, but instead we're gathering together. It's not just the content, but you get to commune with others. These theoretical things become tangible when you actually offer grace to others. This is a family gathering, not just a production. We have life with one another. Now, so this is why we, you'll often hear us while we'll say, you know, going to church, but this is why we don't merely just go to church on a Sunday. We gather together as the church on Sundays. We gather together as a body. 
It's not just the content. It's the communion of the saints. Now, this is starting to get into a little bit of the second point, how we gather. So that's why we gather, because of what Jesus has done, because we get to remember it and we get to encourage one another in it. But how do we gather? So how do we do that? I need to say something before diving into this, how we do it. It's this difference between form and content. Here's what I mean. We tend to think that the content, we come to church for content. Let me put it that way. We tend to assume that church is about just getting content kind of downloaded to us. But the issue is the form in which we get that content matters as much as the content. Backing up culturally, why I'm saying this. We've tended for, I don't know, the last 20, 30 years with the rise of new media, especially in evangelical circles, we've tended to assume that if we're consuming content that's good and clearing out the bad content, that's enough for our lives. However, that's not true. The form in which we take in that content matters. You can have content that's good and you can connect with others, for instance, on social media, but is it actually good for you that the only form in which you engage with others is through isolated scrolling from a distance? Is it good for us that even if the content is wholesome and it's clean, that actually when we're just in isolated ways, just streaming mindlessly all night long, is that the healthiest thing for us? In other words, content matters, but so does form. The form in which we get content matters. In the form, what Scripture presents, in which we should be getting the content that, that coming together is with the gathered church. So while it is good, we stream online. It's a great thing that we have available when you're out of town on business, when you're not able to make it because you're sick or whatnot. It's great that that's available, but it is not the best. The best that God has for us is to gather with his people as a body, getting both the content in the form of God's gathered body, doing life with one another. And part of that form is what's called a liturgy, how we do this. On Sunday mornings, how do we, the question is, how do we help the gathering help us know, love, and obey Jesus? How does it help us know? Well, it helps us know Jesus in newer, profound ways by remembering. It helps us remember Jesus. This is something we're just going to fill in this chart as we go. But the gathering helps us remember. Because throughout Scripture, what we see is God calls his people to gather in order to remember what's true. I'm reading right now, just devotionally, through the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm amazed by over and over and over again, it's remember Israel, remember Israel, remember Israel. And it tells the story, they recount the story. And then he tells them, have these feasts, even feast of booths, where they, they would go out and they'd even reenact while they remember how God led them through the wilderness, and they reenact living in the wilderness, the Passover meal, where he, he has them reenact what happened at the Passover with glasses of wine, and, they, and then Jesus uses that to interrupt it, to give them the Lord's Supper. Like, all these things are reenactments to, in order to remember what God has done. And so when we gather, we remember. And we remember through a liturgy, or just a liturgy is just a formal, I know it's a big word, but it's just a formal ordering of the different elements of what we do, of the story when we gather together. So what is that? What do we do when we come together? How do we remember? So this is what happens when you walk into Anthem. So the first is a call to worship. So I want you to understand what's happening. And this isn't always exactly the order. It can change. It isn't, and sometimes we'll maybe uh, de-emphasize or emphasize one of these areas over the others. 
But this is the standard of what happens. We have a call to worship. So when you come in, what it says here is, let us draw near. So there are truths of why we can draw near to God. And the truth is that none of us wake up every morning and we save ourselves. Our salvation starts with God initiating. And God initiates every morning by calling us to himself. His mercies are new every morning. And he invites us to himself. And so when we gather together, we're reminded by God calling us and calling us with His grace, calling us with His redemption. So I know like last week we did um, from Matthew when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Man, when I'm walking in here and I'm coming out of a week, it could be a week of triumph. It could be a week where it's heavy laden. I'm just crushed. Like it almost feels like I'm just crawling in here. And I hear this invitation that says, if you're weary, if you're burdened, if you're heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. When we come in, we need to hear that and be reminded of that, that our salvation is initiated by God and it is completed by God. And so God calls us to himself. And when he calls us, we respond by listening. And then next we move into a time of of adoration. So normally what this is, is we then have some kind of an attribute of God. So now we're coming in, we're thinking in terms of coming into God's presence and we're encountering him. And there's usually some song that has words that capture an attribute of who God is and his character. And it usually has something to do with an overarching theme for the morning that's usually highlighted in the sermon. And so we gather around and we sing songs and we praise God for who he is. Now, here's where it's helpful to talk about how we do like singing and how we think about songs. This is why at Anthem, we are particular about the songs that we choose and that we sing. We only sing songs that we believe are biblically solid, you could put it, that actually adhere to biblical truths, that are are healthy for us to say. And, And we believe that the reason why God has called us to sing and do these things is because as embodied creatures, we are meant to come in together and for God, for like you see in Scripture where it's like bang a drum, make some noise, blow a horn when the people together and state truths. And also because we're embodied beings, our minds are getting those truths, but also our bodies are supposed to celebrate them or posture or respond to it. So it works those truths down into our souls. So a few things with that. One, we will never attempt to manipulate you emotionally with untruth. Our goal is always to motivate you towards truth. And that's with an undistracting excellence in the way that we do our music. So when I say undistracting excellence, what I mean is undistracting from the glory of God. Things can be distracting by when they're poorly done. You know, when like somebody's like, oh, Johnny, they want, he wanted to blow, play his French horn at church, and Johnny's playing, you're like, Johnny can't play French horn, right? And you're just kind of like your toes are curling over, and you're like, Johnny, I, ooh, Lord, help him, hit that next note, right? And the whole time, you're supposed to be worshiping God, but the whole time you're going, this is so distracting from actually being able to worship God because it's so poorly done. On the other hand, it could be so overly top well done where it's like lasers and fog machines are going, oh my gosh. And it's just like, and I'm up here, I have like amazing mane of hair, right? And I'm just getting on, like, and you're just like, I, it's so over the, I'm, I'm worshiping this person, not God. It's distracting. I know I've given extremes. Our goal, our principle that we talk about regularly is how do we have an undistracting excellence that isn't manipulating people towards just an emotional experience that's empty, but motivating them towards truth, which will change their lives. And we do that with an undistracting excellence that is meant to point them to God, not absorb it ourselves. 
So that's just a word on how we do songs. And by the way, why do we do sometimes old hymns and why do we do new songs? You're going to hear all of them here. The reason why we do this is there's a principle in Scripture, a, a parable that Jesus gives that we often skip over, where it says this in Matthew 13. It says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of, of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He's saying there's, there's this whole treasure trove of church history, of, of ways that the church has confessed truths about God that will never change. So take out of that treasure chest and know your grandparents, if they were believers, and believers a thousand years ago, and when kingdoms rise and fall all across the globe, they're praising God, you do not change, and it's beautiful, and we want to join them in that chorus. And then there are also new songs that put it into modern language, into our times where it captures who God is. And we have those up here. Sometimes we have older songs with modern instrumentality, whatever the word is. I don't know music. I don't know how to talk about it. Well, we update it. But why do we do that? To capture that parable, to bring out what is old and what is new, to celebrate who God is, to have the fullness of it. Next, then, we'll have a time of confession and consolation. Of all the places, I think, in the modern world that how we do what we do when we gather, I think this is the most pivotal as far as having content and form and how it shapes us. When we come in the, in here on Sundays, we come from all kinds of weeks. All of our weeks are imperfect. So we begin to raise our hands. We begin, you know, if you're a varsity church worshiper, right? Uh, we, we also sing with our mouths. We begin to think high thoughts of God. And there's inevitably this moment as we begin to sing when the thought comes into our mind, usually accusations of the enemy to remind us, this past week, the ways that what I've imagined with my mind, the profane things I've said with, hurtful things I've said with my mouth, the destructive things I've done with my hands. In the holy presence of God, we, sh we should realize how un unholy we are. It should provoke that in us. It's healthy. It's called a conscience. The question is, in that moment, what do we do with it? This is why we have a moment where we'll read something like 1 John 1, 8 and 9, where it says that if you will not confess that you have sinned, you're a liar. We all have sin. However, the good news of the gospel is that if we will confess our sin, then Jesus is good to forgive us, to save us, to cleanse us. See, what happens is what kind of people do we become if we go to church every week and we come in and it's all victorious and it's all the whole time and as soon as we begin to realize that moment, you go, nope, just sweeping under the rug. I'm all good, God. What kind of people do we become? can actually validate a lot of self-righteousness. When we gather into the presence of God, it should bring us to our knees to realize, and then we're given this gift of being reminded that, yes, you can confess your sin, but go to him, and he will console you with his grace. He will embrace you with his love. He will heal you. He will deliver you. And being reminded of that when we come together, and then when you raise your hands, you go, I actually can praise God because he has sprinkled me clean. He's removed my shame. It's not just I have to compare myself to everyone else in the room, but we're all sinners here, but we're all made new, we're all made clean, and we can praise God together because he's the one who saves us. Not just I go to the best church in town. 
And sometimes we do this by reading scripture. Sometimes we offer a prayer. Sometimes it's a pre-written historical prayer. Uh, and sometimes this will also just be a lament. If something has happened culturally, we really lament, and we might lament what's going on in the world. And I know with some of those things, at times you've probably been like, man, that seems kind of like a, a pre-written prayer that we're praying, and like some of these historical forms, like traditional forms. And I know for some of you, are like, tradition's bad, isn't it? Almost, but not quite. Another helpful quote there's a church historian named Yoroslav Pelikan, which if your name is Yoroslav Pelikan, you should probably become a church historian because that's an awesome church historian name. Uh, but he says this. He says, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. We will bring out things that are of the tradi- church tradition, prayers that have been prayed acro- around the globe at different times and generations of the church. We'll bring out, we're not afraid of tradition. That's the living faith of the dead. That's beautiful. That's the treasure trove. But in terms of worshiping tradition, no, we're not going to worship it. That's when it becomes traditionalism. When it just becomes about doing the things that get the approval of man. But we will have forms at time that seem more traditional. That's why. They seem like they're from church tradition. That's good. That's beautiful. So that's confession. But then as we do that, then we hear the sermon. We hear preaching. What's happening right now, right? Because stirring one another up, we gather around the preaching of God's word. Because we live not by bread alone. Preaching is a unique form of communication. This is not just a lecture. This is not just a sales pitch. This is not all, it is preaching. It's unique. And it's one part prophetic, God speaking his unchanging truth into changing times into our cultural moment. And it's another part, like I swear I'm going to write a book called Preaching as Exorcism. Because I really do think there's an element of it where God just does something spiritually in the room. Some of you have experienced that. That comes uniquely by preaching. Here I want to say this too. This is why this matters. The gathered body of Christ, the form. I am preaching right now from this platform. We preach from a platform. We don't preach for a platform. We do not preach generally for a platform for millions of people or five, whatever, but millions of people to listen. We speak from a platform in person to the things that we need as a body to be encouraged in, to be built up in, to grow in, to be convicted in. We preach for this body here. Preaching is meant for a local body who's gathered, who have a life together. By the way, also, we'll usually have a scripture reading before, and we do that on purpose because before I come up here, for instance, and I'm starting to talk about what Scripture says, we want you to hear Scripture. Thus saith the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, before any man commentates on it. Because it's God's word, not, not just merely my opinion about God's word. I don't get to frame it. This is God's word. It stands alone. I stand under the authority of it. Just like in all of our lives, we stand under the authority of of God's word. And then ultimately, it culminates in Christ because all scripture points to redemption in Christ. And that brings us then to communion where throughout the New Testament, the believers gather together, they break bread together. And it's a time when we are reconciled to God and to one another. I like to think of communion as the original altar call. 
that in response to God's word preached and who God is and what he has done in Christ, now we have a response where he says, even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, even if in this moment there's conviction of realizing, man, my heart is so far from the Lord, what he says is, come to me and remember that I have made a way. Historically, just like you're taking bread and, and this cup and you can hold them in your hands in this historical way, this moment now, I also died and I rose again historically. And what I have done saves you, even if you only have a faith of a mustard seed. And so every week, communion reminds of, of that. And it also gives us a moment where we go, am I willing, am I allowing myself to have my sin be removed by the blood of another, yet I hold others around me responsible for their sin by holding them accountable by their own blood? Am I willing to, put, to apply the blood of Christ to what, how they've hurt me? It's a time for forgiveness and seeking forgiveness. But then the, the response, then we sing a song in spirit and in truth, and we respond to God, one or two songs, and then we'll usually have a benediction, which is just, we always say a blessing for the road, which is just a fun way to say, we have gathered to remember, we've been realigned to these truths, and now we are not merely leaving church, but we've been gathered, and now we're being sent by God. We don't just leave after we got a product, and then we, leave, and then we go out. No, we've come together to be formed by God, and now we're being sent to wherever God has placed us and to live it out. And so we pray over you as you go and bless you and commission you and God's Spirit leads you. And then after that, we've lately, we've moved to what was normally called the peace of Christ. Okay, so this is this, and historically in the church, they have the peace of Christ. We call it the welcome time, right? Everyone's like, oh, the welcome time. Uh, the welcome time is when you turn to your neighbor, but here's the thing. It was there because it's the peace of Christ. I have the peace of Christ. Where do I start with you? Not by how good looking you are, how successful you are, how much you can, you know, add to my platform, whatever it is. It's not transactional. I start with you because you have the peace of Christ. I have the peace of Christ. Our relationship starts there. And I learn to do that in the church. I welcome based on that first, not by class, not by educational attainment, but by who we are in Christ. And so afterwards, when we end, we say, because of the overflow of what Christ has done, we've been reminded of, take a moment before you head out to welcome those around you. So every week we have this remembering portion and then that helps us realign our souls. And simply put, what it means is sometimes there's a truth that you just need to hear. Sometimes there's a, a, there's a decision that you're wondering on and it gives you wisdom. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, what it is, is there is hurt in and doubt filling your soul and you just need to hear the people of God singing over you. Most powerful moment I ever had in this was when my former church and uh, one of the other pastors, his wife, was dying of brain cancer. Last Sunday, she ever was with us in the gathering. Every week, wheelchaired in. I could hear pew behind, singing what remained of her raspy voice, praising God, holding the hands of her two adopted daughters, them singing at the top of their lungs about the goodness of God. <laughs> You think that when I hear other believers going through realities like that, when right in that moment for me, my life was pretty good, it was pretty comfortable, and I hear those truths being sung, do you think that doesn't change me? When you come in here, sometimes it's just you can't sing, but the people around you can sing. 
Sometimes you don't even know why you're here and you're wondering what does God even want to do with you? Is he even done with you? And you hear, see people around you crying. You see people around you responding. You hear people, mm-hmm, pastor, right, during the sermon. You hear all these things. It's a way to speak over one. It aligns our hearts. It changes us. We're provoked to go and forgive someone and we actually go and tell them we forgive them. It changes us when we gather. It reorients our hearts, our souls, that this is true. Lastly, then we respond. When we're sent out from here, we don't merely, again, leave church, but now we're sent by the Spirit to respond. And so God places us all around this city, all around the campus, wherever it is, in order to live these things out. We are not hearers of the word who go and then forget, but we are people who are doers of the word by responding to what God has, told, has reminded us of, and now we live it out. So quickly, how do we participate? What's the next step? How do we engage? Wow, I didn't know there was actually a story being told here. How do I participate? It does change it. The first one is preparation. How to prepare. Uh, so we prepare because it's a mindset from I have to to I get to. Now, the first one obviously is beyond time. <laughs> I told you I'd come back to it. There's a certain point where, but think about it, it's not just beyond time. I get it. Like, when you, we have little kids. We have three kids. We've been in that phase. It's hard to be at church time. I'm supposed to be here an hour early, and I'm almost not on time sometimes. But here's the thing. Why we want to be on time is because when we're, we're beginning the story with God's invitation to us, and then we're moving to adoring him, and then we're in the middle of, like, confessing sin. Imagine if every week you only walk in when you're confessing sin. What's the story? There's no invitation from God in his grace. It's just when you walk in the church. What if every time you just walk in right at the point of just hearing the sermon? But there isn't that time where you actually prepare your heart before God and confessing your sin and going through that. See, it doesn't matter how we engage, but preparation starts before even walking in the door. Yesterday, my voice is, I'm surprised actually my voice is still going because my voice is almost gone because we went to like, we were going to the football game. So to go to the football game, we didn't just go to the football game. We also went to tailgating. And then we also, before tailgating, we went to the parade right? And we had all this stuff that set it up to go to the game. We have all these things in our life when they're important where we set it up. When we go to the movie theater, right, we go to the dollar store, we buy all the candy, we hide it in our purse, and we sneak it in, right? It's part of the liturgy of going to the movies. It's how we prepare. Y'all do it, okay? <laughs> You're absolved. And so when you go, you go to a movie, you watch a preview before. We do these things because it's preparing our hearts. We're preparing for it. And here's the thing, but then church, we just show up last minute, and it's like, I don't know, I'm just here. And so this, what God's inviting us to is he's saying, listen, this is, an, you're, a, you're, you're reminded of the most important things in your life on this day. So here's the thing, like, if, I get it. Like, man, if you have kids, you have room, like, sometimes your roommates are like kids, but you, your spouse is like a kid sometimes, but you have these, and it's like, just make Sunday, make it a fun day where it starts with a feast. Like, literally, make Sunday, like, we're going to have a gigantic breakfast on Sunday mornings because it's just, and I don't care if it's a stack of pancakes, if it's waffles, whatever it is, but we're going to have donuts. Just have something where it's like, we get to do this. Like, Sunday fun day needs a runway. It doesn't happen by accident. And so prepare, prepare. We even send out a preview on Sunday nights, if you get that email, where we walk through what's going to be in, in the text for the morning. So if that's helpful, you can look at that Saturday night, and it can prepare you. But the next posturing, when you come in from passive to active, let me come back to this. We will not, our goal is not to manipulate you. Our goal is to motivate you. That means if you walk in and you sit into the chair and it's like, move me, pastor. I'm not going to try and manipulate you. 
we're not going to try to force you here. We're not going to force feed you. We're going to set the table and set the meal. It's for you to engage. The question is, what is your posture when you come in? And, and I'm not saying that there aren't days. It doesn't mean you have to be slappy happy when you come in the church. We should bring our burdens. We should bring our pains, right? Oftentimes, church is a place. This, this is a triage center. This is where we come with all that. So when we come in, one of the things I want you to hear is come in, though, going, it might be just a quick prayer. Lord, would you help me? I, like, I'm struggling today. I'm hurt. Will you just, will you meet me here? Like, have a posture to, and to the Lord, not, not just to whoever's here or me or who. Like, it's to the Lord. Lord, would you meet me? Have a posture of expectation, active. Next, then, is partner. So from come to to part of, we don't just come to church, but we're a part of a church. We're part of this body that gathers together. Two ways that you might partner, and I'm actually going to hit these at the end during the benediction, is one is consider committing to become a member of Anthem. Um, I was just talking after the first service with, with one of our students who started going to another city, and he's trying to find a church, and he's saying, man, it's just, there's something different about it. And he referred to it, he said it's like this X factor. I was like, aha, that's it. There's something about when you become a member of the body. You know how when you're like dating, and you're like, we're going to break up. And you're like, why? And you're like, ah, it's, I can't explain it. I just don't want to date you. And you're like, that's not enough. And you're like, it's this X factor. We just don't have it. And they're like, I don't understand. You're like, I don't either. It's just an X factor. It's kind of the same thing in the church when you become a member and you commit to it in a highly transactional and commodified culture of relationships. To be in a place where the only place where you actually have commitment at the center of your relationships will absolutely change what you experience at church. Okay? Because we know that we sacrifice for one another and we're committed to one another. And so, therefore, it brings that X factor. It's kind of a mysterious thing. When you're committed to an actual church in a day when no one ever commits, it actually is an X factor that changes. The, the second way you can partner is by serving. You know how some of you, like when you, you get married and you're like, we took a whole year to plan out a wedding, right? Well, guess what? We do an event like that every Sunday, okay? So it's kind of, it's a crazy thing every week. This, though, is not a machine. This is a family meal. And I'll, just like a family meal, when you come together, everyone does a part, and that makes it a family meal. And so there are areas, if there are areas like serving in kids, and this is part of how you grow as a disciple. You learn to share the gospel and raise kids by serving in kids. You learn to welcome the stranger by serving coffee. It's part of how we grow. It's not just roles that we just have to fill or holes to plug. It's actually how we grow as disciples by serving the local church and in the family. So we'll have a little bit at the end about how you could jump into that. But because I'm going so long, I'm going to hit the last point, which is process. The last thing is from leaving to going. Simply when after Sundays, maybe this afternoon, maybe it's at lunch, having a regular time where you just process what have you heard. It's very dangerous, I think, to actually attend hear things, have conviction, and not respond. God will put names, faces in your head, actions, and it's for you then to ask God, what would you like me to do? What's the faithful response what I've heard? And so is there a time when you, you, make a, uh, you, know, you have a habit of considering how you respond to Sunday? So the question is, what is your next step? Is it, is it in preparation for the gathering? Is it your posture? Is it how you partner with the gathering? Is it the processing afterwards? Listen, this is the final thing. We can agree there are many good reasons to have to miss a Sunday, right? There are many good reasons. Some of us have to travel now 50% of the time. There might be good reasons we have to miss because we're sick, 
might just be out of town seeing family. There are a lot of good reasons why we might not be able to make it, but here's the thing. Uh, I think we should all agree as a church, none of those things are ultimately good for us. It's not good for us to have to be away from church week in after week out, week out. It's good for us to be with the gathered body. Why? Because Sunday is God's means of helping us remember the true story, of realigning our souls so we don't get lost in the fictions of the world. It's emancipation through participation. And this starts with participating in the retelling of the story. So the question is, what's your next step? What's your next step of participating in the gather? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you that we don't gather just because, just because, but to be reminded to retell the story, to be captivated by what you have done, your redemption, that you make a way and that you invite us, invite us in. Lord, would you, would you give each of us, Spirit, would you guide us? And what, what's that next step? What's that next step? So that we would know, love, and obey Jesus in deeper and profound ways through gathering with your people. Don't let it go to waste, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.